I have to start by saying that we're recording this while South Africa and the world are struggling to come to terms with the coronavirus pandemic. And I appeal to everyone to take this crisis really seriously and to do all they can to slow the spread of the disease. But podcasts are a great way to keep yourselves occupied and informed during the self-isolation and lockdown. So if you found this podcast and, and the previous episodes interesting, please share it with others. It will help us get through this time. Hi, welcome to Optimizing. This is Barry Dwalatsky. And this is Karen Gammy. Um, all right, so I think we should kick it off. Um, and I guess I want to start off with a term that kind of makes a lot of tech people angry. And it's the idea of the fourth industrial revolution or 4IR. And I know I've heard you speak about it with particular disdain. <laughs> and so I'm wondering, what makes you dislike the term 4IR? Well... My problem with the use of the term Fourth Industrial Revolution or 4IR is that it's become almost meaningless. It's a sort of hyped up catchphrase that everyone uses, but very few people really understand. When I first started hearing people talk about 4IR, I'd make a point of asking them to try to define what it means. Uh, in fact, let me try this on you, Karen. How would you define 4IR? Oof. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see if I can give the most kind of textbook answer and not go too off <laughs> on the rails. But I guess it's kind of the new stage that we're entering in terms of history and technological change. So we had the first industrial revolution, which was in the 18th century. Um, and there we saw the steam engine come about, electricity, mass production, and then ding, 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 computers. <laughs> Uh, so I guess this new stage is meant to bring together big data, machine learning, AI, robotics, and the other new technologies. Great. And that's how most people would define it. Um, 4IR is seen as a signpost on a timeline that neatly marks out a sequence of industrial revolutions, each with its own set of technical innovations. The problem with this way of defining it, though, is that it's far too arbitrary. Why is it the fourth industrial revolution and not the fifth or sixth? Why is it not just the continuation of the third? And how do we select the basket of technologies that characterize this new industrial revolution? Should we include quantum computing or gene editing or blockchains in the basket? The term Fourth Industrial Revolution was first coined by the German economist Dr. Klaus Schwab, the founder of the World Economic Forum. In 2016, Schwab wrote a book called The Fourth Industrial Revolution, and this was one of the themes of the annual World Economic Forum gathering held in Davos in Switzerland in January 2017. After that meeting, we started hearing the term 4IR from every political and business leader who was there. As I see it, the difference between the fourth industrial revolution, if we accept that there is such a thing, and the previous ones, 
is that the fourth industrial revolution hasn't yet happened. The first, second and third industrial revolutions were only discovered many years after the fact. There wasn't a meeting in Manchester in 1760 to announce the coming of the first industrial revolution. Klaus Schwab even made this point in a follow-up book he wrote called Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution, which was published in 2018. Okay, so there is obviously a whole fuss or a hype culture around 4IR, but do you think there really is something technologically related and significant happening in the world right now, or at least about to happen in the very near future? I definitely think something significant is happening and it's gaining momentum. Uh, Let's put the label 4IR to one side for a moment and think about the changes that are happening. If we go back to 2011, the German government launched a big initiative that aimed to modernize German industry. They gave their campaign the label Industry, spelt with an IE in the German way, 4.0. In many ways, it was a marketing campaign aimed at putting a modern face on German manufacturing. In 2016, a group of German researchers wrote an academic paper in which they made the point that Industry 4.0 needed a proper definition. They pulled together a lot of material written about Industry 4.0 and they found a number of common threads. They called these design principles for Industry 4.0. I find these design principles really useful in understanding what has been changing over the past 10 or 15 years in relation to manufacturing and other sectors of the economy. These design principles also affect non-hardcore economic sectors such as education and leisure. So what are these design principles? Well, there are four of them that seem to be the most important to me. I'll list them and then describe each one in detail. The four principles are interconnection, digital twins, hierarchical control and robotics. So firstly, interconnection. Although the concept of the internet goes back to the 1970s or even the 1960s, when it originated as a system to connect research computers together at various American universities, it didn't really have a significant impact yet. It wasn't until 1991 when Tim Berners-Lee invented the protocols that gave rise to the World Wide Web, and in 1993 when Mark Andreessen invented Mosaic, which was the first web browser. It was then that the world, as we knew it, began to really change. An interesting side note is that South Africa at first was cut off from these developments in the late 1980s and early 1990s because, you'll remember from previous episodes, there were international sanctions against apartheid. There were very strong academic sanctions against South African universities. And because most of the development of the early internet was happening at universities and research institutes, none of them would touch South Africa with a barge pole. The invention of the internet 
was really introduced into South Africa in about 1988 via a very secretive arrangement between someone called Mike Lurie, who was then the director of computing services at Rhodes University in the Eastern Cape, and Randy Bush, who lived in Portland, Oregon, in the USA. A telephone connection was established between Rhodes University and Randy Bush's home. Mike Laurie and a few other computer science academics at Rhodes University then collaborated with a number of telecoms postgrad students at Wits University. This included Angus Hay and Taki Milianus. And they used telephone lines to link their lab at Wits to the internet, which was all over the world, but it was via Rhodes and Randy Bush's house. I took great interest in this because, as I described in episode two, I was working in the secret of ANC underground on secure communications from South Africa to the rest of the world. So all this stuff was very interesting to me. I can remember a time when Taki and Angus were in huge trouble with the then head of the Wits Computer Services, Henry Watermeyer, because they were wasting precious university resources on long-distance telephone calls to Grahamstown. It was also at about this time that I ran a workshop for Wits staff on something brand new called email. A mere 10 people attended this workshop, and most of them thought that this email thing wouldn't really catch on. Anyhow, I'm straying off the track. We will definitely do a future podcast on the fascinating history of the internet in South Africa. What I was talking about was the first design principle at the heart of Industry 4.0, namely interconnection. The internet and the World Wide Web, as we know it today, is mostly about connecting people to each other and to huge amounts of information and other resources. We'll call this the Internet of People. What we're about to see now in the world is the internet becoming a way to link things. To link things to each other, to link things to humans, and to link things to huge amounts of information. And this is being called the Internet of Things, or IoT. We're also beginning to see the Internet of People working together with the Internet of Things. Some are calling this the Internet of Everything. Just imagine a world where everything, or almost everything, is interconnected and able to share information and receive information. We aren't there yet, but it would be something completely new and completely different. So I get the interconnection part, right? It's the process or mechanism of connecting people to people, things to things, people to things, and some maybe variational combination of both. What about the second design principle you were talking about, the digital twins? We spoke about this in some detail in one of the previous episodes. Some of the work I did in the UK in the 1980s involved very early examples of digital twins. Basically, it's a way in which we use models, algorithms, data, 
sensors and actuators to build a realistic version in the digital world of something in the actual world. Now this is much trickier than it sounds, but having a really good digital twin makes it possible to run multiple scenarios, to do optimization, and to run simulations. If, for example, we had a completely accurate digital twin of Karen, we could test new drugs on the digital twin rather than putting the real Karen at risk. The third principle is called hierarchical control. It's one of the only ways we can deal with complexity. Consider, for example, a self-driving car. They're really popular talking about self-driving cars now. So if we consider how a self-driving car will work, it's not built with a single computer managing everything that goes on in that car. It has subsystems and sub-subsystems that deal autonomously with low-level decisions. It might have a collision detection system that stops it colliding from anything else. It might also have a traffic light spotting system whose only job is to look out for traffic lights and respond to its signals. There would then be a higher level system or, or a highest level system that makes strategic and difficult decisions. If the collision system says, slam on the brakes, but the rear view system says that there's another car close behind you, what will the car do? The high level system will have to make the difficult decisions. So my two key takeaways from this is that real Karen is always the best Karen. Yep. <laughs> uh, and also, thanks to design principles, we don't ever have to make hard decisions, thankfully. Um, all right, cool. So you've covered the three design principles. And the fourth one is somewhat of a, a hot topic. I can feel my, my heartbeat starting to, to, to speed up. But it's the idea of robotics, right? So tell us a little bit more about robotics. So you are right. This may, in fact, be one of the most controversial and problematic design principles in Industry 4.0. It deals with ways in which machines do jobs that humans once did. Some of these robots are physical electromechanical devices, the kinds of things we've seen for many years in science fiction and also in reality. In the 1980s, I worked at the GC Marconi Research Lab in England with real industrial assembly robots that could do very impressive things. A self-driving car, for example, would be a transportation robot. We also have completely digital forms of robots, such as chatbots and robotic process automation, or RPA. I heard at a conference last year that it's now possible to go online to a virtual employment agency and hire a robotic process-enabled system to do a range of standard office tasks, such as processing insurance claims. And it's here that the controversy kicks in. Do we really want to replace humans with robots? It's become a social and ethical question, not simply a technical one. And that's why this fourth principle is the most controversial. On the one hand, I'm of the opinion that automation should free up the time of humans so that they can do more human things, like 
think creatively, feel, etc., etc. But capitalism kind of makes everything hard. Um, and so I don't know if we're even in a position where we get to just live as humans if we're not pinned down by the identity that work brings us, right? And that's super complicated. And then on the other hand, to your point, this is a very social and ethical question. And I think oftentimes in really technical spaces, human problems kind of are just viewed as an academic exercise, right? Like there's always some sort of algorithm that can help you make sense of the world. And so it's just cool and exciting to figure things out. And then you figure things out and you kind of scale out your solution. And invariably, it just tackles surface level problems and not real human problems. And then that's also super tricky. And, and it has been the topic of extensive debates around where to use automation, where to use robots. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think there, there clearly are situations where safety is important. If you're looking at deep level mining and very dangerous environments or firefighting in a nuclear power station, then clearly it's better to put robots in than people. But whether you want a robot to process insurance claims or not is a whole other issue. So how do these design principles associated with the Industry 4.0 help us understand 4IR better? The design principles are important because they give us a far better way to define what it is that's different about the current state of technological innovation. We aren't drawing arbitrary lines on history's timeline. We also aren't simply listing new technologies. Some of the key technologies that impact these design principles are decades old. I worked on some of them in the 1980s. So it's not all about new technologies. A key point about the design principles I've listed is that it's not about any of the principles taken individually. It's all about all of them, all four of them working together. It's the whole package. My problem with the concept of 4IR or the way it's being used in South Africa at the moment is that nobody has bothered to define it properly. I've asked some 4IR experts for a definition, and they haven't been very convincing. Without a definition, the phrase 4IR is used to define almost anything digital and modern. It's really all about hype. Although I do wonder, so if you don't like the term 4IR for the reasons that you've discussed, how would you go about describing the massive changes that we are experiencing, or at least are going to be experiencing? I personally like the term digital transformation. It implies changes to organizations and society that are driven by digital innovation. The concept of digital transformation is, in fact, as old as the computer itself. Um, Digital technology evolves on the back of constant innovation, and it always has. The mainframe was replaced by many computers, and then PCs, and then smartphones, and the cloud. Digital technology changed as the internet, and AI, and IoT were invented, and then gained prominence. I like to think of two streams running side by side when I think of digital transformation. One is evolutionary digital transformation. 
and the other is revolutionary digital transformation. The evolutionary form of digital transformation has always been the way things are in the digital economy. Every few years, new technology has required a change in how digital technology works in the world. All of us who work in the digital industry have become used to this constant evolutionary change. Very early systems that were written in COBOL to work on mainframes have gone through numerous evolutionary changes to allow these same systems to now work together with smartphones and chatbots. Our skills have also needed to evolve. I'll talk more about skills a bit later. But the second stream also drives digital transformation. This is the revolutionary digital transformation stream. These are examples of really big, radically different things that will change the world. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, Sturkenekor ran a chain of movie houses throughout South Africa. It still does, but something revolutionary has happened in terms of how each cinema runs. In the olden days, films were reels of celluloid. A cinema needed a huge complex projector and a qualified projectionist to show the film. In those days, a fleet of vans drove around the country moving reels of films between cinemas. Each cinema had people selling tickets, selling snacks, tearing tickets at the entrance and showing customers to their seats. In recent years, this has all changed. The films are all on a server, in some cases in the actual movie house, but in other cases on the cloud. Projectors are digital and can be controlled remotely from a central control room or even by a digital robot. Ticket and snacks are sold online. So Sturkenakor has become a very different digitally transformed business. It brings together all the design principles I discussed earlier. It's a great example of revolutionary digital transformation. This is an example of what I see as the fourth industrial revolution. There are still very few such examples and it is still far short of the actual potential implied by the design principles. My key point is that 4IR hasn't really yet happened. It's intermingled with evolutionary digital transformation. It's really important, however, for society, each society, because our reality is very different from that in any other country. But for each society to understand what is actually happening. It's also important for all of us, not just the geeks, to make decisions about what kind of technology will feature in our future. This would be where you come in, Karen, with your background in philosophy and ethics. It's a human and societal issue, not a technological one. All right, so you said that you would chat a little bit more about skills, and we obviously keep hearing about these 4IR skills and jobs of the future, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, what are the skills? So there's been a lot of hype around skills as well. 
the impression is being created that everyone will need to be retrained, that everyone will need to be an expert in robotics and AI, that old IT skills are no longer relevant. While there is some truth in some of this, I think it's a complete overreaction. If we go back to what I said about the dual stream of evolutionary and revolutionary digital transformation, the old is not going away. We'll still need lots of IT professionals who can do coding in languages such as Java, C++ and C Sharp. We still even need COBOL and Fortran programmers, and these are very old skills. We also need project managers and testers and user interface designers and database experts. Some of these skilled people will have to add to their skill set. We are also going to need lots of people with new skills. People who can work with data, like data scientists. People who can work with AI and machine learning. We'll need people who can deal with IoT, blockchains and quantum computing. These are in addition to the old legacy skills. What I can say about 4IR and skills of the future is that everyone, the whole population, should be digitally literate. School children don't all need to become coders or robotic engineers, but they do need to understand what coding and robotics are all about. I personally think that the best way to prepare the population for digital transformation in the future is to ensure that everyone is able to deal with rapid digital change. To do this, the most important skills people should have are good foundational skills, the ability to learn new things, the ability to be good problem solvers, good communication skills, particularly with respect to modern communication tools, and some ability to act in an entrepreneurial way. Yeah, I'm very much on the same page as you. I'm also not of the opinion that everyone needs to learn how to code and be building these fancy and sexy AI machine learning models. But to your point, it is really important that people just know what's going on, right? And I think we're seeing it a lot when, when uh, we think of digital privacy or data privacy. So many people obviously don't read that huge chunk of text and apps or whatever, and you just say, yep, click, accept, and you have no idea how your data is being used. And maybe that's that's fine because right now it's not being used maliciously or at least in a way that you know is being used maliciously. But principally, it's just it's weird to not know what you're actually getting into. And I think the other problem with that is that this industry is, is coated in in elitism and verbosity. So even if you want to read these intensive documents, you probably don't understand what's happening. So you get disenfranchised and you're like, oh, it's probably fine. Um, let's just let's just keep it moving. And so even that needs to change. Right. Like it's the, the small things. Um, to try and just get people included in the conversation because we're talking about everyone here. And that's the key thing to me. I think the key thing is that we, society, and every member of society, even people who have never been part of the debate around digital, are going to have to debate the kind of world we live in. If we're going to see robotics and digital twins and internet of everything. People have to be able to, to kind of make decisions about what they want and what they want to see. And society has to, or the leaders of society, 
have to hear what people are saying and not just do technologically advanced things because we can do it. It must be something that moves us forward as a society. So that's really where this is all headed for me. We are now at the end of the eighth episode of Optimizing, and it's the end of season one. We've spoken about my journey from the 1970s and mainframe computers to where we are now on the brink of this revolutionary digital transformation. In these past episodes, I've shared some of my learning with you, but although we've spoken for hours, I still feel like the conversation has barely started. In the second season of Optimizing, we'll bring in many other voices to share their learning and experiences. In the meantime, we'll have one final part of season one. It's an epilogue episode in which we'll respond to questions and comments from our listeners. So listeners, please send us these questions and comments, either as a voice note or a text message to any of our social media sites or via email on optimizing.podcast at gmail. That's optimizing with a Z. We also now have a dedicated website and it's at softwareengineer.org.za. That's one word, softwareengineer.org.za. Questions and comments can also be posted on this website. Your questions and comments should please reach us by the end of March and it will give us time to record our final epilogue episode of this season one. Thanks for listening to Optimizing, everyone. It was produced by Professor Barry Dwalatsky, presented by me, Karen Gammy, and Barry Dwalatsky. Evan Wigdarowicz edited the episode, and he designed our logo. Music and sound were done by Callum Cool, and Joshua Clark mixed the episode.